Hi, I'm Jason. I've had successes and what I felt like were epic failures. At each point, it was the people I walked with and learned from who helped me through. On my podcast, What Works, I interview authors, educators, executives, and people who work to change the world. I walk for a moment on their journey and learn from them. For me, that's What Works. You're listening to the What Works podcast with Jason Todd, and today my special guest is Mark Metry, the author of Screw Being Shy. It's a new book he's uh, releasing here in 2020. Super excited to have him on the podcast. Welcome to What Works, Mark. Man, thank you so much for having me on, man. Super excited to dive into this. Well, this is a cool cool time to be talking with you. I've, I've had some thoughts swirling in my mind uh, that seem to join up with your thoughts, and we got connected through LinkedIn. Uh, and on there, you were talking about your history of success, and now you've kind of got a new message that you're changing things to uh, in, in informing us of, really, which is you know, success in terms of money probably isn't the answer, but let's talk about mental health and what's mm. going on in people. Uh, walk us through that journey and how you got to this point. Yeah, definitely, man. So uh, I've never heard the words mental health or things like anxiety or depression maybe until I was like 18, 19 years old, but I had them. Uh, and so, you know, for me, you know, I, I could go on to my journey, but, you know, my parents, I come from immigrants. My parents came to this country before I was, you know, even born. They came with a couple hundred bucks in their pocket. As a kid, I kind of faced some mental health issues early on and, and physical health issues as well. But, you know, despite that, I ended up doing what a lot of other entrepreneurs I see do. And it's kind of used like this dark, um, I wouldn't say dark, but they use this source of energy that is anxiety and they don't really know how to harness it. And so oftentimes, you know, someone with um, some unresolved mental health issues, small or large, um, may kind of put all that fire and energy behind something. Maybe they are an entrepreneur to make money. And you know, maybe they do become successful financially. Maybe they don't. Uh, personally for me, you know, I did become financially successful, just self-made at like the age of 15, 16. I wasn't like a multimillionaire or anything of the sort, but, um, you know, regardless, like, I kind of went from a spot from, um, my, my family living on, um, a lot of government subsidies to not, and just kind of living our own lives. And so, um, very grateful for that, but it also kind of, made me pause and um, kind of think about what success was because at that time, you know, my definition of success was um, something that I didn't even think about. And I've learned that if you don't think about something, if you don't define it on your own, you just automatically pick up and assume the beliefs, thoughts, ideas, and the people around you. And so for me, that was like this concept of the American dream of the fact that, you know, you can go to school, work your way up, just work hard. And then eventually, you know, you have enough money and you buy a house, you get married, you get a dog, and then you're just happy with your life. And when I realized, when I got access to the amount of money that could create that life very early on, I realized that I was still a loser. I still didn't like myself. <laughs> um, and so that's really what happened. And, you know, it took me a while to figure out. And that's kind of where I began to get depressed. And, you know, eventually I kind of realized that I had two roads to go down kind of come to terms with my 
own mental health and sort of try to stay on the front side of that, try to proactively just try to reverse some of the issues that I've had and, and also heal and rewire my brain. And then I saw the other path of not doing that and maybe using substances to cope with that. And I knew that you know if I had mental health problems that would place a damper on my life, I knew that they would place boundaries all over my life, which would limit my potential. And so, um, you know, I, when, I was, when I sort of came to term with those two options in college, I took the former. I did what most people do. I tried to escape, which, which eventually led me to, being, um, to gaining over 60 pounds, being over 200 pounds, uh, becoming depressed. My social anxiety that I always had my entire life went into social isolation. And soon after that, I was um, eventually like suicidal. And so, you know, I've kind of like gone through this journey and I've, you know, talked to people on my podcast, literally billionaires um, who had billions of dollars and yet they were suicidal. And it's really just made me realize that um, the world is changing. The world is changing in a lot of ways that a lot of us don't really know until it might be too late or until some of these issues have happened to us or a loved one. And so I just kind of feel like I'm in a really grateful moment in time in 2020 where a 22-year-old like me can just be doing some of the things that I talk about all the time uh, for a bigger cause. And so, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've reached like almost 40 million people on my podcast. Um, and for me, it's just about waking up every morning and trying to uh, kind of improve this image because, you know, my, for example, my parents, they come from Egypt. And I mean, the whole, the whole mental health stigma over there, I mean, is completely disastrous. It's way worse than um, in America by, this, by, by the least. So um, there's a lot of work for us to do. And I just am, feel grateful enough that the fact that I didn't become a statistic and I didn't you know, end up in a horrible case. And I honestly um, you know, got really lucky with a lot of the hard work and focus that I put in that I'm just, I feel so privileged the fact that I'm just alive right now and the fact that I can continue to spread this to other versions of me who are also facing these issues right now. I mean, you know, 800,000 people every year commit suicide. And so, you know, for me, I'm not sitting down. I'm trying to stand up and be a part of that conversation, that movement, because to me, that's what makes life meaningful. So, (laughs) yeah, no, I can totally resonate with a lot of things that you're saying there. There's, there was a time when I had uh, too much money and too much time on my hands. And boy, when I started, right. when I started do, doing things and, and, uh, and trying to create more success, uh, that my anxiety went through the roof. And I remember right. sleepless nights and feeling terrified in a lot of ways, despite, despite lots and lots of cash sitting in the bank account. Like I could have just shut everything down and said, peace out folks and lived on a beach uh, for a while. And that, and yet there is something that trapped me uh, into that, maybe, maybe call it a rat race, I don't know what you call it, but right. that, that cycle of trying to pursue the next thing or trying to pursue whatever that you know, elusive success is hanging out there. And, yeah. and so anxiety, um, you're, you talked about anxiety being this source of energy, which is, mm. a, I think, a really insightful way of looking at it. What, yeah. what do you mean as anxiety is a source of energy? Yeah, man, this is a this is a great great question. And and by the way, to your to your point previously of uh, like having that ability to sit on a beach for the rest of your life. I mean, honestly, like I think before you become 
at least some degree of success. That's like your goal. But then right. <laughs> you, I think they have the former true definition of success. You know, of course, like taking vacations and taking rest time is important, but it's like, honestly, for me to go sit on a beach in Tahiti, that's like literally the worst <laughs> case of how I would spend my time. That to me now is like a nightmare. Um, yeah. But for sure, you definitely need to rest and go on vacation, all those great things. Um, but this is what I mean by anxiety is a source of energy. So there's a subsection in my book called Anxiety is a Superpower. And, you know, honestly, man, I really don't think it's any coincidence the fact that um, I literally spent every day of my life from ages 9 to 18 trying to run away from people, trying to hide from the world, the fact that I have social anxiety. And today, it's literally all I talk about. Today, it's literally like my job. Like I'm a speaker, podcast host, author, um, consultant for companies and startups that kind of deal with this issue. And it's literally all I do today. And so I don't think it's any coincidence the fact that I had a lot of that energy that I was trying to run away from my entire life, but now I'm accessing it and it's really enabling me to scale this message and grow my career. And so what I'm talking about here is I think the best way to describe this is um, I was listening to this podcast with Tim Ferriss and Dr. Peter Atia, And they were talking about sort of this dynamic between like mental health and entrepreneurship in terms of energy. And what they were saying is that, you know, essentially like your, your raw talent, your raw sort of human, um, the thing that sets you on fire, um, that is essentially, you know, in terms of a metaphor, that is like a hot knife blade. Okay. And we get access to that ever since we are younger. That's what enables us to learn things, grow things. Uh, it's really just sort of like that raw life force behind us. And we are holding that hot blade. And so a lot of the times when we are trying to do things in the outward world and we're trying to use our skills and our talents, we take, pick up that hot blade and we pick it up and we slice it and we use our bare hands to do with that. And so you are impacting the world, but at the same time, that hot blade is also just naked and it's in your hand and it's cutting your hand back. And so this, this sort of causes us to, yeah, you can do a lot of things in the outward world, but because maybe you don't have a grip or a handle on that knife, maybe you're not really harnessing it that well. And it's also cutting you and hurting you back. And so as you begin to kind of learn like a lot of these um, mental health tools, techniques that I talk about online all the time that I'm sure we'll get into, you begin to piece by piece build like an ergonomic grip to build onto this knife so that you can hold it in your hand, but the knife doesn't cut you back while you're continuously using it in the world. And so you look at that and you also look at, you know, maybe other people like Simon Sinek, for example, that said, um, you know, the emotion of anxiety is the same exact neurochemically to your body as excitement. And a lot of times what's missing is that change in perspective, that change in mindset. And so, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people say that like, you know, we should kill fear, we should murder fear, fear is terrible. I don't really think so. I think fear is actually an emotion born out of love most of the times. And we yeah. just need to build better relationships with it. And so that's exactly what I'm referring to. If you can build a better relationship with fear, you not only gain more control, but I think you also gain more power. And I think if you look at a lot of people 
um, who are wildly successful today, a lot of them have usually struggled with some sort of a, a previous anxiety that really, really controlled their life. And they were able to sort of get on the front side of it and begin building that handle that can then let them use it and harness it to their control rather than for self-destruction. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I see where you're going with that. So as I look at it, and this is just my own experience and tell me that yeah. this uh, kind of connects with what you're talking about. Uh, anxiety, behind a lot of anxiety is, is what you're talking about, kind of this idea of fear. And I've, I've lived a lot of my life fear-based. It's, it's my go-to energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the behind that fear, I think what, what the opportunity is, is to understand what, whatever's behind that what are the feelings that exist behind that? It's so I'm afraid because I'm afraid because they're not going to like me. So I'm not going to do that thing that is in my heart to do, or I'm a, or I have to build up a lot of money because I'm afraid that if I don't, then I won't be loved or taken care of or respected or, and, and I, and I feel like maybe that idea of, of being able, like you're talking about kind of hold that hot knife, is to understand that we have the ability to create and we have the ability to destroy as people. Mm. It's a unique, it's a unique ability to us. No, mm. the rest of creation just exists, but people mm. get the ability, innate ability, to create something or destroy something. Mm. And and in that, we can take we can take these indicators like fear or anxiety, and we can learn what are we what do we want to create, what do we want to dis- or what do we need to destroy mm. to cr- to to bring about. Uh, whatever we consider to be best for us, and it turns out, I think a lot of those, a lot of those bests tend to overlap, um, mm-hmm. and uh, just because we're, just because we're humans, uh, is that kind of, is it, what resonates from that experience, my experience, in with what you're talking about? Yeah, so um, I think uh, I think a lot of it has uh, resonates, and I think honestly, like the the big thing to teach people is that. You know, I think that there are almost two kinds of fear. So I think there is the fear that is born from sort of um, maybe like your your natural uh, presence of like, you know, what I, I used to really think that, and this is different from being fear-based in decisions, mm-hmm. but there's difference between sort of um, being controlled by fear and then, like I said, building a healthy relationship with yeah. fear in the sense of, like I know if I'm afraid of something, it's because I love it so much that I'm worried I might lose it or vice versa. And so I think that is massive. And then I also think that there is another side to this that is biochemical. So, you know, in doing, in sort of writing my book and doing the research, um, you know, they've done studies that show people who have social anxiety physically have bigger amygdalas in their brain, which is the part of your brain that's responsible for um, fear detection and management. Okay. And All so right. I think part of this is biochemical in the sense of like, if you are not giving your body the right resources, the same way that you have to put in like the right kind of fuel into your body for it to move. Um, but instead, instead of that fuel, you know, you're, I don't know, you're dumping in excessive amounts of alcohol or junk food, or you're not meeting your bodily requirements for sleep and movement and exercise, then I think fear can 
um, happen as very much a, a, a byproduct of not using your body, your physiology well. And so I think that's the way that I look at fear. I think half of it is this uh, emotion that we really need to develop a better relationship with. And, you know, there's that quote that says, fear is like a compass telling you, telling you where to go. And for me in my journey, that was a massive part of it. Like a massive part of it was me not like having a roadmap and saying, right. okay, I need to do this, 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 and that. Right? That's like one of the most common questions people ask me. Like, how did you go from suicidal to doing all this? And, you know, it's not like I ran home and I just wrote down a plan and I was like, I'm going to do this, this, and that, and then my life's going to be awesome. <laughs> right? right? This is not the way it works. It's still not the way it works now. But the way it worked then and, you know, even today to, to some degree is like, you have to look at what you're super afraid of and just try to take one more step towards that. Try to get curious, try to open your mind. Right. And, you know, I know for me, like writing a book was literally terrifying. That's why I'm going to do it. Um, doing a, a half triathlon in June, literally terrifying. I'm going to yeah. do it. Um, all these different things. And so I think as you begin to do that, you begin to improve your relationship with fear, and you really um, begin to see it as sort of like this, uh, this feedback loop, like this compass that is sort of guiding me of where I need to go. But, but I do think that before you sort of develop this understanding of everything that you and I have been talking about, I think it's very easy to, um, you know, sort of like what you said of to live fear-based, sort of caught up like in the matrix almost of... Right just not even living your own life. And I think and, it and becomes, I think it becomes like a feedback loop on itself. So mm-hmm. the, 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 the quote that stands out to me is the antidote to anxiety is action. And mm-hmm. if we think For of, sure. so I'm super anxious, which is, I look at kind of like the, ther- the thermometer, like what's the temp in the room, but the thermometer doesn't change the temp. You got to go to the thermostat and change the temp. Mm-hmm. So the antidote to anxiety is action, but, if I'm, if that, if, if, if I go, well, I'm going to take an action, but that action then leads me down a path where I encounter another fear. You can do that just so many times, I believe, right. uh, internally before it's just like, okay, no. And, and for those of mm-hmm. us who can, who have a tendency to, to, uh, I'll call it overthink. I, I think that's yeah. fair. Uh, those of us who have a tendency to overthink things, once you've played out each scenario and it all leads to the things that you don't want, you, it's almost like you can't, you can't pick the best of the worst. So you then go right back to the beginning. It's like, and now I'm stuck. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and, it, and too many times I think you can get in that feedback loop and almost become addicted to the anxiety. Yeah. You learn to live at that level of anxiety. And you think that's normal that's uh, exactly. for you. And and I was, I was talking to a, a guy who owns his family business and he's been in the business for eight years. Family's owned it for like 15. And it, it, over the course of a year, you know, we meet with him every couple of months. And we're like, okay, so what's changed? And he tells us the same story each time. I'm like, okay, but tell me how long is this current scenario sustainable? Well, another six months. Really? Truly? And it just kicked the can down the road. And like, but your life is falling apart. It's, you are ab- in an absolute mess. Your, your family doesn't work. Your business doesn't work. This, you know this isn't sustainable. You're sitting here in tears and you just want it to stop, but you think you have to keep it going. And I was like, so you, I said, you think that this, this, le- this current level of anxiety and decision-making is you become, you've, you become uh, acclimated to that environment. The temperature is mm. way too damn high in the room and you think it's okay, Dude, but you know it's perfect. not. 
and and he didn't know he didn't know the steps and what actually was unwilling to take the steps to get out of that because each every path was filled with prickers you know and he's going to come out scarred on the end of it and he didn't he just didn't want to be scarred he thought maybe there's some magical you know magical uh fairy dust we sprinkle over this thing and tomorrow is going to be different than today without me doing anything significantly different and and i know and and i can speak to him that way because man i've lived my life in that scenario so many times right and is that i feel like that's kind of where this that feedback yeah. loop of anxiety and fear just starts to creep up and then boom you're stuck in the middle of it and you need to be kicked out of it by by circumstances or someone so honestly man i first off i love everything you said and this is this is the craziest thing right so for me what you said is is that um you know i one time heard this quote and it was uh the mind can normalize anything and the person who told me this quote was um donald sujo a world olympian and the craziest part was this guy grew up in communist soviet russia in soviet union and he was telling me that when he was living in the communist country he had no idea and so essentially what he was telling me is like our minds are these survival organs that main priority is not to keep us happy or to keep us fulfilled it's to keep us alive and so the brain will create whatever system it has to internally to get you to think keep doing that however today's modern world is super interesting in terms of the different feedback loops that it can have with our mind and what i've learned is that you know through thousands of years our minds have created feedback loops within our literal environment to get us to survive uh, a common example of this for example is um you know when you are hungry you go outside and, or you try to find some food somehow in the outside world um and a lot of the times is our modern world has changed that it almost corrupts that feedback loop with our brain and it can lead to um you know a lot of various dicting behaviors and you know in terms of like the environment of, of what you said of um, like the temperature, this is the way that I think about it. I think about it in terms of this. So I forget who said this, but uh, a writer made this analogy of a, of a goldfish bowl. And there were these two goldfish swimming in the fishbowl. And one fish goes to the other and says, you know, hey, what do you think? You know, how's the water today? And the other goldfish says, what's water? And the matter of the fact is, is fish are so encompassed by water all throughout their lives, all throughout the day, that they don't think, they don't even see it. It becomes invisible to them. But then when a fish, but then when a fish tries to go above water, it physically can't because it's places boundaries. And so that's the way that I view, not necessarily even fear or anxiety, but really any sort of uh, repetitious theme in your life that it just becomes so prevalent that it becomes invisible and it just blends into the background. And so for me, like growing up, I was facing anxiety and, and really severe social anxiety and I had no idea. And I just thought that, you know, there was something inherently wrong with me. I thought I was some sort of a moral failure. I thought I was just destined to be nobody and an outcast. And for me, when, the, when that sort of lifted, when I was able to see that water, when I was able to see that environment, that sort of gave me like a, like a goal to hit, like a starting point of like, okay, now that I've become conscious of this issue, 
let me try to solve it. Because, you know, once your mind becomes conscious of something, there's no going back. But, um, yeah, I mean, what do you think of that? <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. I'd be, I was telling this to somebody, and it's kind of a frequent example I use. In my life, I, I uh, was afraid of heights. And a number of years ago, I wrote a five-year plan. And the five-year plan had two major sections, things I wanted to be and things I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. it wasn't an exhaustive list, but one of the things I wanted to be was more adventurous because I felt like I wasn't living the life of adventure that I could. And I didn't know what exactly to do about it. But I thought, well, I'm afraid of heights and I'm tired of fear of heights controlling me. I will not uh, listen to this, this enigma of fear. I don't even know what it is, but I'm afraid of it. So um, I thought I should learn to rock climb because in my mind, I was thinking there's there's, if there's two people standing on the edge of a cliff and one person is afraid and the other person isn't, what's the difference? Because they're both in the same circumstance. And I thought, mm. well, there must be something that the person who's afraid doesn't know. Mm. That maybe the person who isn't afraid does know. And I need to learn that. And that might be mm. my first step. And so I learned, I learned the principles of rock climbing to understand how to keep me safe, which then enabled me to spend more time in in higher environments where I become where I became acclimated to it now I don't think I'm gonna you know spontaneously throw myself off or you know these rocks that have been there for how, God knows how long you know aren't spontaneously gonna crumble under my feet and I'm gonna die today so it set it set a lot of these other fears uh, aside because I became acclimated to that environment out of initial choice of I'm tired of being stuck uh, mm. and controlled by this fear and that enabled me on to to pursue all sorts of adventures. So I, I see, yeah, I kind of see where you're headed with all that. Now you, um, you in your book, the title is, mm. is screw being shy. Now, are you, t- you're, you're talking about social anxiety, um, which may or may not be shyness. Um, mm. right. Yeah. So this is the way, this is the way I talk about it. So, um, so if, so for example, um, if you are an introvert, or you are someone who's necessary or who's quiet, um, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, introversion is defined as someone who is predominantly spends most of their attention focusing on the internal world, their thoughts, ideas, and get energy from that. An extrovert is the opposite. And so if you're an introvert and you're a quiet person, there's like nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, I think that uh, being shy which is defined as being uh, nervous when you have to do something. Um, I think that is, again, totally okay and natural to a healthy degree. But, you know, I think that, you know, if you, so if you go to like a networking party or something and, you know, you might be a little bit shy for like the first minute or first five minutes or you go to an event and there's like nobody you know there, I think that's totally normal. Um, but where it becomes a problem is when you become shy all the time and you become shy in front of other people all the time in every situation and in every environment. Then if you do that enough, then that becomes social anxiety where your mind and body have created this feedback loop of your nervous system freaking out with your thoughts that then enables you to be in scenarios where you literally cannot control um, your brain, let alone what you are saying or not saying to other people. Um, if you look at a lot of the research, it says social anxiety disorders onset usually develops around 10, 11 years old. Um, that's the most common. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of different factors that can kind of go into this, but if, yeah, if you're shy all the time, then that's social anxiety. Okay. And that's not the same as being an introvert because we're talking about energy levels versus this uh, feedback loop of just maybe not having acclimated to uh, or having some sort of fear that keeps us stuck in that, um, stuck in that loop. So for instance, I'm, uh, and I've mm-hmm. just cause I've seen this play out in people, um, got a, a good friend who uh, learned to do some public speaking, but I know the initial, the initial pass on, Hey, I think you should go host this really basic event was like, I cannot do that. Don't <laughs> ask me to do that. And it was just like, push, 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 push back. And, almost to an extreme level and I thought, okay, well, this is all right. I don't know what we're dealing with here. And, and kind of like, well, you got to give me time. You got to give me a chance to prepare. It's like, yeah, there's only a couple of, like I said, paragraph of things you need to say and kind of wing it or the rest of it. And I realized, you know, at that point in time, it's like, yeah, but I've been doing this for a long time. Just give me some right. bullet points, throw me in front of a crowd. And we're good. We're good. But, but yeah, when I first started out, I was terrified. Like I, there was, there were fears that, that would rise up in me. My armpits are sweaty. My hands are sweaty. I'm sh- I got the chills, but I decided, I decided to walk through that door and, uh, and kind of down that path to, because I knew it was just, it to some degree was made up. Um, mm. It's, it was, it existed in my mind, but I, I was afraid of something I'd never, I'd never really done. Uh, and then I think there's also those layers of, um, of misunderstanding or not yet understanding that everybody deals with these things to some degree or has dealt with yeah. them. Uh, and, and, uh, and so fear, you know, if you and I were talking about, you know, there's, there, you know, talk, you talk to billionaires and they're still afraid and they're suicidal and they've got these, these just things that sit in their gut. We look at people who are highly successful and think, yeah, well, they, it's just so easy for them and they don't have, they don't have these struggles. It's, which is so, totally not true because we're all people. Right. Um, so that I, it's, it's interesting to me kind of where this sits in the gut. Um, what, what are the, you, you get us some practical examples. I know like one of your things is eat healthy because you're right. taking in all these foods and we're just now, I think, discovering that, uh, it's really super important, not just for weight, but right. for our overall mental health that our bodies just get the kind of foods that they need to operate on. Uh, and yeah, and this is research that I think a lot of some people don't even believe, um, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I'm, oh, I think man, you probably yeah. experienced that as you talk about this. Some people are like, yeah, forget that. I can eat that pizza. Well, you can, <laughs> but you know. So, yeah, what exactly. are your what are some practical things that you're seeing through your research and the people that you're talking to that that can have a measurable impact as people deal with this uh, yeah. kind of uh, I don't know, kind of foggy area of mental health. Definitely, man. So first and foremost, uh, in terms of introversion, yeah. I mean, you can, you can be an introvert and you can maybe not necessarily like talking to people, but, uh, but you can do it. And, and mm-hmm. it doesn't bring you too much uh, fear uh, or anxiety. And I think introverts definitely are more susceptible to being social anxiety for sure, just because of... Um, sort of who they are. But, um, but yeah, I mean, essentially what I'm talking about is, you know, social anxiety, the craziest part about it is social anxiety is actually one of the most ancestral roots of fear. And what I'm talking about is, 
you know, when I, so for today, I don't really experience social anxiety anymore. Maybe it's like 1% there, but I've, you know, through sort of all these analogies, I've built the handle on that knife that's given me the 99% control that I do have over it. However, you know, definitely still happens. And I think the, the main thing to sort of understand here, just one last point on fear is you need to understand that, you know, you are not socially anxious, but your brain is socially anxious in the sense of this. Um, you know, so they now know that our brains are these super complex organs that have developed through thousands of years to keep us survive and to detect threats in our environment. Also at the same time, our, our brains are these, uh, organs that have also learned to detect potential psychosocial threats in our environment with other people. And so you look at, um, you know, one of the reasons that's made human beings survive and become the dominant species on this planet, and it's because we work together in groups. And if you weren't in a group, you would more than likely die. And so a big part of social anxiety is this ancestral fear of not speaking up to your group, to your tribe, to your leader, because a very common punishment for disagreeing with people, especially disagreeing with the, with the leader of the head honcho, was social ostracization. And so if you were exiled from your group, you would more than likely die. And so our brains equate you speaking up, saying the wrong thing, to literally dying. And so, you know, this, this can sort of seem uh, pretty... Um, harmless to people that don't experience social anxiety seriously and just are sort of looking at it from a shallow view. But I mean, um, if you speak to anyone with social anxiety, they'll tell you like there are literally moments where your nervous system goes into a complete fight or flight. And even if you wanted to, you cannot talk to people. This is why a lot of times you hear people's voice tremble. um, Their mind starts racing. They start sweating. And it's because they're in this fight or flight mode. And for people with social anxiety, that can happen. And so even if you want to, your body is sending your brain all the psychological um, and physiological uh, changes needed to really make that fear prevalent in like every single cell of your body. And so that's sort of what social anxiety is. It's totally different from, from introversion. Um, and like I said, totally healthy and okay to be shy at times. But if you see yourself constantly shy, um, seeing that as a pattern that then begins to affect your life in other areas, like you overthinking what you're going to say to people, you not being able to go to sleep at night because you've just stayed up for four hours, overthinking uh, what you're going to say the next day to other people, that social anxiety and it's very toxic. Now, when it comes to actually what you can do, you know, your point on food uh, is definitely, you know, interesting. So again, you know, I, I bring up this, uh, this neurotransmitter that gets mentioned in not only a lot of mental health circles, but also leadership. You know, if you look at um, all, all drugs, all medications, for the most part, that are involved with mental health, they all target this, uh, this vehicle, serotonin. And so when I was kind of doing my science, my research behind this, I really found that only 5-10% of our serotonin is in our brain. And that totally blew my mind because it's a neurotransmitter. And so it should be your brain. And then if you look at the science of the last 10, 15 years, and you know, this has really been like 100% um, 
documented, and now this is just a fact. 90 to 95% of our serotonin is actually in our gut microbiome, which is, you know, I remember going through school through anatomy, they didn't even teach us what this was, and technically because it's not even a human system. So our gut microbiome is this community of trillions of bacteria next to our stomach and our intestines. And these bacteria have existed long. Oh, sorry about that. I just muted my mic. Um, you, you know, our, our gut has existed for thousands and thousands of years ago and has created a symbiotic relationship with human beings that has made us the number one species on this planet. A lot of people don't know, but your stomach is not the first one to digest food that you eat. What happens is there's actually a lot of foods, like just like literally everyday plants that we can't digest as humans. And so our gut microbiome digests that first and then passes it off to our human body to like process and use. And so, you know, I was never taught this ever, ever. And you know, this is new science, so how could we know? But the same way that our gut and our, and can work with us like in any organism that is in a mutually beneficial relationship, it's called symbiosis. However, there's also a flip side. If there is some dysfunction done to that gut microbiome or to that human through a variety of different ways, maybe psychological trauma, uh, maybe um, stress in a, a, over a period of time, um, not eating the right foods, uh, the lack of eating the right foods, eating the wrong foods, lack of sleep, uh, alcohol, drug use, all these things can really put a damper on our gut. And so dysbiosis of the gut microbiome has been linked to uh, countless mental health issues. It's also been linked to so many other like chronic illnesses that a lot of us face on a regular basis. And so, you know, a big part of this too is, is sort of what I said before of now our brain is interacting with the modern environment through these cues, through this feedback loop that it's never had access to. And so now our brains have the ability to, um, you know, go on your phone, go to Uber Eats, go to any delivery app and order a ton of food that like we literally could not have access to because it wasn't invented a long time ago. And so, for example, I look at studies, I mentioned studies in my book that take brain scans of people who are addicted to, to hard drugs and they take brain scans of people who are addicted to junk food and there's no difference in between right. their brains. And that's because, you know, if you, know, you eat, a, I don't know, like an ice cream sundae, that amount of um, like macronutrient composition of fats to carbohydrates to protein is created in a way where you would never find that in nature. And so when we eat that, it, you know, one gets really dysfunctional towards our digestive system. And then also, you know, our blood glucose level in our brain. And so, you know, there are countless studies that show uh, eating uh, simple carbohydrates um, is linked to increased rates of depression and anxiety because you are constantly in these highs and lows, highs and lows of energy. And you know, there was even a study done that took people with bipolar disorder and they adjusted their diet, they removed sugar, they put them on a healthy diet. I believe they added some supplements too. And they found an insane reduction of people who literally experienced bipolar disorder, see it dramatically reduce 
when they change what they're eating. And so, you know, I kind of look at this honestly as a, uh, as a real foundation for people because, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do to begin to tackle fear. But it's like, you know, in my book, I talk about exposure therapy and different ways to kind of combat these fears. But if you take someone who, whose body and whose mind is literally in like a psychological uh, stress response and you tell them to go conquer their fears, it's just not going to happen like whatsoever. Like even if you try to get them to do it, it's going to be extremely hard. But if you can get somebody to kind of use biochemistry, physiology as a foundation first, because that is way easier than trying to conquer your biggest fears and to kind of give your body those raw resources so we can, on the biochemical side, reduce fear, then I think that can be a real foundational piece that somebody can, can do as a lifelong sustainable foundation for their mental health. And then it's much easier to begin tackling your fears because you now have energy, because you might be a little bit more focused, because you're probably getting more sleep. And so I think that is a real, um, real foundational way, just like a step one of how someone can kind of begin making these right steps. Who's the target for the book that you wrote, Screw Being Shy? What's that individual People, look like? Uh, wait, sorry. What, what's that? What look like? What, what's, what's the individual look like? What are, what, what are they going through? Are they at the beginning of this journey? Or are they kind of in the middle? Are they reasoning it around for others? Where, where do you hope to, uh, yeah. to connect with people? Yeah, so this book is really for people who are shy that don't want to be shy. Okay. And so, you know, I have no problem with someone in some corner of the world just, you know, I don't know, an introvert, just, you know, being, living their own lives and their own peace and quiet. Um, you know, people, people should do whatever they, <laughs> they want to. Uh, but for me, my real target is people that have consistently seen themselves not perform in social situations when they want to, but their brain is not letting them. Right. They're caught in that feedback loop. And I, I love what you talked about this idea of if you tell somebody who does, who is kind of not, maybe not physiologically prepared uh, and say, Hey, go con go conquer your fears. In some cases you could do, you could actually uh, keep them or, or kind of embolden that, that feedback loop because now it's like, Oh my gosh, I knew I was going to feel this way. And sure enough, I did. And all of a sudden you yeah. now made it even harder for them to step out the second time when you didn't give them a holistic message uh, of it takes, uh, it actually takes a lot of different layers. It's kind of, it's kind of like the people yeah. who um, are significantly obese. Um, mm. They, they're never told, Hey, go out and run because mm. their bodies are just not prepared for it. You got to mm. start, you got to start working on some, some smaller steps first, and then eventually you can get to where you're not going to, you know, damage your knees because you're so overweight. Um, so it seems sure. to me that there's, there are some kind of introductory steps that all of us could do. Uh, now, in in your experience, having you know talked with talked with people as you're as you're writing this book, and you and you keep posting about it online, which is great. What what are some common themes that you're hearing back from people who hear this mm -hmm. message of you know eat healthy and uh, and get get some sleep and pay attention to your gut microbiome and uh, what what are the what are the kind of resonant frequencies that come yeah. back to you? Yeah. So, um, so probably the biggest one is that people actually realize that social anxiety is debatably one of the biggest problems on planet earth. And the reason why I say that is because I know it's a very bold statement, 
the reason why I say that is because, um, again, when you look at the statistics, social anxiety is tightly correlated with substance abuse and social isolation, both of which are strongly correlated to suicide. And so that's number one. Number two is this. If people are shy, if people cannot communicate themselves, if they cannot communicate themselves to the world, to their team, whether it's at work, school, whatever, um, you know, you really are not going to be able to uh, live a life of your own. And on top of that, you're just not going to be able to work well with other people. And, you know, massive solutions, um, massive problems require massive solutions, which require teams, teams of people to um, really operate on. And so when I was kind of looking at this book and as I began to get it out there, and as I began to talk to people, I really began to connect these dots of like, social anxiety is a meta problem because if people aren't being themselves, then they're not communicating, which means that they're not necessarily um, creating solutions for the world. And for me, you know, every problem that I see out there in the world, whether it's uh, climate change or violence or uh, racism, I view all of those as um, we're just one really good solution away um, from, you know, us taking steps to tackle that problem. And so to me, um, you know, if we can get people, you know, kids in school, um, you know, college kids, people that work at startups, people that work at corporations, people that work in the government, if any of those people are really shy at, at being themselves, then, you know, maybe they are really missing out on their potential to create that solution alongside people. And so that's probably number one. And probably number two is this. Um, a lot of the sort of mainstream mental health solutions that are offered to us are, um, are usually a combination of um, call the suicide hotline, uh, go to a doctor or a therapist, um, and yeah, that's basically it. Um, and then aside from like, you know, go exercise, people that are sort of understand the holistic healing aspect, they might throw that one in there too. And, you know, I think the first two are great solutions that have helped a, a lot of people. But I also think that by that exact offering of the solution of calling the suicide hotline or by going to a therapist or by going to a doctor and actually speaking up, about these issues that not a lot of us have been taught to, to speak on. Um, that in and of itself is very uh, counterintuitive and not too incentivizing for people who have social anxiety. Right. Right. <laughs> do the so, very so thing you hate to do anxiety. to go help the thing you hate to do. <laughs> exactly. And so for me, like, and this is part of my TEDx talk too, is like a massive part of this is like, we need to give people that do really suffer from having to talk to other people almost like a runway, almost sort of like a, hey, here's a, fear, a first step of what yeah. you can do on your own. And, if, and you know, it, as you sort of begin to, to help this, then you can you know, go in and see that professional help if you, if you struggled with that in the first place. And so that to me is like a, a real big one that we're not addressing. And, and, and the reason why is it's, it's so hard. Like, right. I, you know, people who haven't experienced like extreme shyness and social anxiety, like, there's a certain percentage of the population out there that is locked into their own minds. They cannot talk. They cannot be themselves. And so from the outside, that looks like 
introversion. Oh, you know, I remember being, you know, I remember as a kid, every single, every single parent teacher conference, every sort of social interaction be like, oh yeah, Mark is just like the shy kid. He's just the shy kid. That's just who he is. And that right. can definitely be the case, but that's also very, um, that doesn't do the people who actually experience this severely any justice and it really, really harms them. And so I kind of dealt with this and I'm just like, this needs to get out there in the world. Yeah, I think, so what, res- what resonates with me, we, we worked with an organization uh, whose goal was to normalize the conversation around teen depression and suicide in our region because mm. we, we had a rash of teen suicides at some local area high schools. And it was, un- it was, it, it was a big deal um, for, for our community. It was un- totally unexpected. Um, and, and, and in, in working with this organization, we kind of, we come to realize that it's the, it's the idea that if I'm depressed, if I'm anxious, if I'm fearful, if I'm quote unquote shy, that I'm not normal, Mm. I'm not right. Something I need to be fixed. Uh, and so therefore I'm not going to speak up. And because then if Mm. I did speak up, I got to go to an extreme solution in my mind, which Mm. is I got to call a hotline because you know, I'm, I'm right on the edge, but I'm not right on the edge. I'm just, Mm. I'm just sitting here, you know, in my pajamas, not wanting to go out because I'm so I'm afraid, or I don't want to give those speeches and I don't want to talk to those people, even though I know what I'm talking about, but I, uh, kind of one of those feedback loops. I feel to me like what you're what you're helping to do is normalize the conversation around around anxiety, around being shy, around these things that limit us and hold us back from who we can who we can be around others. Which is my guess mm-hmm. my first thought, and then piggybacking that off uh, the other thought, which is, and I think I heard this from John Maxwell, we be we become the average of the five people we hang around with. And so if mm-hmm. you want to change your life, a lot of what you need to do is you need to change your social group. Uh, because th- that social group will speak into you and think in a way that you want to be. Uh, and, and it feels to me that if a person is so shy and so locked up that they can't put themselves out there, they won't change their social group, in which case they're just going to kind of stay in this, this, this kind of a self-defeating spot of, you know, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm not that person. I'm never going to be that highly successful person. I'm never going to be that speaker. I'm never going to share my story. No one would want to listen anyhow. Uh, and so, you know, you just kind of recoil back into yourself. Is that kind of the path that you're on? Yeah, man. So, I, of course, I think that normalization and, uh, and kind of talking about these things more often and removing the stigma, uh, I, of course, I think that's a, a massive, massive um, you know, sort of way that we can begin to take steps to deal with these issues. Um, and then it's also like, you know, I think that if you, you know, I think that I think it can go worth both ways. And so I think if you do not think, um, like if you aren't even aware of what, um, anxiety or depression, or maybe I would even say like these low level mental health issues are, if you don't know what those are, but you experience them all the time, you're going to be stuck kind of like in that, in that water, you're going to be stuck in that environment where you have no idea what this actually is, be it it's controlling you. And then when you actually think about how that's affecting your life, you can just think you're like a moral failure, like what I said before. But I think also when you realize that you have, um, you know, uh, perhaps like a, a, a potential mental health issue, 
Um, I think that's good. And I think we need to honestly, like, I'm so like, I, I, as much as I'm in this, I really don't like using that word mental health yeah. because right. I think right. it gives people so many different, um, connotations. And like, if you look at, um, if you look at this, uh, this neuroscience, Dr. Daniel Amen, um, you know, he says that we should call brain health because the same way that like, you know, if you break your leg, you go to your doctor and you, you know, I don't know, you get a crutches or you get in a wheelchair. If you have a heart attack, you go to the heart doctor and they give you the right kinds of, you know, solutions, medications, protocols to fix that. And so I think we need to do the same exact thing with mental health and just um, really, you know, plow down like a, like this really campaign to teach people that because I remember when I was growing up and I remember when I was in health class and they told us about anxiety and depression, I was like, man, that must suck. <laughs> right. Even though I had that. And so <laughs> right. I did that whole job of like how to accurately just like represent them. Like someone that has depression is not necessarily someone who sits in a dark room all day, covered up in their bed, and they can't talk to people and they can't do anything. For sure, it can look like that, but they're also much more mild forms. And I think a big, big part of this is, um, is not just spreading the awareness, but also, you know, throwback to the conversation that you and I were having before we hit record on this was in terms of like, you know, when I asked you about your music, in terms of, I think that we need to use different mediums to help people understand their emotions and to help them understand things that quite frankly i don't think we can get across with even a book with black and white language i think we need to really get into more like cinematic and artful forms of medium to invoke that emotion to get people to realize these things like i remember watching this video that i randomly stumbled on facebook that had this uh, steve jobs quote talking about death and it was done in like a really good way and it was just like the right place, right time in my life, where when I watched it, I was like, holy crap, like, I now think about the world and that like, my perspective has, has shifted. Um, I think that's a massive thing. And so I think, you know, that's sort of part of the equation too. Um, and then really just like making the solutions as easy as possible, making the solutions, not like, you know, you have to go in somewhere and get fixed. But small little things that you can do every day, as long as, of course, like, you know, you're not experiencing it to a severe degree. And so that's really part of what I'm doing, man. It's like, it's really not necessarily just talking to adults, people in the workplace, but also kids and teenagers. And um, that's something I really care about. And on top of that, the last thing I'll say, there's a study in my book that, um, that was done in South Korea. And they actually take two groups of teenagers one of them, back to the food, they feed them junk food, the normal, like classic American standard diet. And the other one, they feed them all healthy, natural foods. And they saw a 100% decrease in suicidal ideation. Wow. And so when I look at that, and I look at the, the number two cause of, of death in America for 13, 13 to 35 year olds of suicide, that to me is like, man, like the, the food that we give is really not just about weight or even energy or even mood. It's, it really has a lot to do with like how your brain itself works. And I know for me, when I began to eat like a healthy diet, removed all the artificial uh, processed food, began to eat like a lot of healthy dietary fi uh, fats and fiber, vegetables, things that are totally natural. 
I really felt my brain turn on for the first time. And it was after that, that then I was enabled to begin to use exposure therapy to begin tackling my fears of social anxiety. So hmm. yeah, it's all connected. Man, this is, this is a really fascinating discussion. Something that's near and dear to my heart. I've struggled with these things and I've got people close in my life who struggle to, to sometimes what seems has seemed like an extreme degree. Uh, and I, I love, I just love that. I feels like we're kind of at this precipice where, mm. um, as we start to understand more about ourselves and how compli- complicated and complex, uh, and how important we are as in, in our bodies themselves, that we learn to respect those bodies. And out of that comes a whole wave, I think of positive energy and thoughts and giving and loving and acceptance I think it's, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like we're kind of, we're hopefully, I, I, I believe as we keep these discussions moving, we, we, uh, we see lives changed. I mean, that's, that's yeah. ultimately where, where we're headed. Well, Mark, um, how do people uh, pick up this book yeah. uh, of yours? Yeah. So if you go to my website, which is my first and last name.com, M-A-R-K-M-E-T-R-Y.com. Um, you can check out everything that I've got going on from the podcast to the book to where you can contact me, check out my LinkedIn, Instagram, all that stuff. And I appreciate you, Jason, for having me on. Yeah, man, this has been great. I could talk to you for hours, um, but I know that that, uh, we can't can't do that. So yeah. (laughs) Well, Well, thanks, Mark. Yeah, of course, man. And thank you everyone out there for listening. If you know a person working to change the world who would be a great guest on the What Works podcast, contact me, jason at therealjtodd.com.